Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Glad to have you with us. Uh, let me just start by saying this. Uh, welcome, church. Welcome, family and friends. Um, and let me also say I miss you. Can I say that? I miss you all. I miss, I miss our greeting time. I miss this time together. Uh, I just want you to know that you're loved and we're praying for you in this time of need, but be reminded that God is in control. Today we're looking at the scripture that Jeremiah read for us uh, from Revelation chapter 3. And uh, we want to start this way, just with a little history about this last church. It's hard to believe we've already finished this, but the last church is the church of Laodicea, and we call it the sickly church. It's found in Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22, so follow along. Uh, let's start with some history. The church itself was a pretty amazing church. Um, the city itself, though, was also pretty amazing. It was known for three things. Uh, the church... Uh, also was known for these very same things, and both were the demise and downfall of not only the city of Laodicea, but also the church itself. The city itself was about 50 to 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was located uh, 100 feet above the uh, Lysias River. It was made or brought about by King Articus, who uh, named it after his wife, Laodice in 280 BC, but uh, sadly, uh, later he divorced her, so I'm not sure uh, why it kept its name. One of the reasons Paul went to this city was that it had a significant Jewish population. It was said that there was an estimated 7,500 Jewish men who lived in this city. It was a very wealthy city. Prior to Roman occupation, they invaded the city and marched out with 20 pounds of gold. Uh, you do the math on that. I have. That's over $514,000 by today's standards. Then during the Roman period, this city itself was the center of uh, banking, and it was a very wealthy city. But when it had an earthquake, the uh, city itself, when asked by Rome if they needed anything, said, no, we're good. We're fine. We will fix it ourselves. Rather, not being financed uh, by Rome, they were self-reliant. They were self-dependent and they were self-sufficient. Not only were they known for banking or gold, they were also known for two other things. They were a city that made great wool products, especially black wool. Uh, they were known throughout the empire for making shiny black clothing or black wool clothing. Remember that. And also it was a place of advanced medicine. Their school of medicine was famous for making eye salve that helped those with uh, seeing problems. So as we keep that in mind, what defined this city was that they were full of gold, they made great black wool, and they had eye salve for healing. The church itself, well, it had a great beginning. The church itself had great leaders like Polycarp. Polycarp, as we know, was one of the great leaders that uh, left that area and was in Ephesus after John. Uh, but he began in the church of Laodicea as an elder or deacon. Uh, their pastor was Archippus. In fact, uh, Paul, when he established this, he wrote at least one letter to the book of um, Laod or the church, excuse me, of Laodicea. 
but also referenced it in other New Testament books. Uh, Paul wrote at the end of Colossians, give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea. And when this letter, the, church, the, the, the letter of uh, the Colossians was read among you, have it read among the Laodiceans so, and see to it that it's read, uh, you read the letter from Laodicea, probably the letter from the Ephesians and the letter to Philemon. And then Paul went on to say, say to Archippus that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. It would appear that it was also the home church to Philemon and his runaway slave Onesimus. Um, in Philemon, verse 2, it says, To Philemon, our beloved brother and worker, and Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it was a church of great beginnings. It had great leaders. It had great opportunity. But what happened? Is it possible to have a great start and years later slowly fizzle away to nothing? Of course it is. We see it all the time. Untreated or unrepentant sin, complacency in the faith, no new births that lead to the death of a culture and a church. The problem was that the church wasn't following the image of Christ. Rather, it was conforming to the image of the city, a city full of wealth and self-sufficiency, industry and medicine. The city needed nothing. The church needed nothing, or so they thought. I want to say where this message is headed in a sentence today. So as I say it in a sentence, it's this. Beware of the desire for self-dependency or self-sufficiency. Beware of the desire for self-dependency or self-sufficiency. Rather, be Christ-dependent. Amen? Now, Jesus was and is and forever will be all we need for life and godliness. Those who don't know Jesus and don't need Jesus don't know Jesus. Let me say that again. Those who don't need Jesus don't know Jesus. As we begin this text, let's begin as we have in similar fashion. Uh, point number one, see me. Verse 14 says this, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. We're called to see Christ. It's our duty to recognize him and who his word says he is. And in this church, again, hopefully you saw three very distinct things there. First, it's the word, the amen. Amen was an Old Testament expression and godly attribute. It meant true or truth. So if one would read the words of the Pentateuch or the prophets or the Psalms and they would agree, it would be appropriate to, for them to say amen or that is truth. Here Jesus is called the amen. And Jesus was going all the way back to Isaiah 56, or excuse me, 65, 16, where twice Isaiah described God as the God of the amen or the God of truth. Jesus is saying, I am the same one as in Isaiah. I am the truth. My words are truth. But didn't he already say that? Can you think of a passage in Scripture where he might have already said, I am the truth? I'm thinking of John 14, 6, where Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Paul echoed this very same statement 
when he said that all the promises, listen, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is the truth behind the promises of God, and he is the truth to the glory of God. So he is the amen. He says, see me as the amen. See me as the faithful and true witness. And I thought it somewhat ironic that Jesus, who was falsely accused, and his people, his disciples, who have falsely been accused and martyred, now stand as the one who says, I am the truth, and my word is truth, and my ministry has been given to me and fully carried out as the faithful and true witness. From early on, he said, I must do the work of my Father until the, on the cross, he said, it is finished. He died for our sins, and he is the faithful and true one to his word. Three days later, he rose again, and one thing has not been left undone. And Jesus is echoing to this self-sufficient church. It's all been accomplished in me. And let me ask you, what makes us think Christ isn't going to finish what he already started? He always has and he always will. But the third one is a bit, um, is a bit different and it might lead to some misunderstanding. And I can see how it is if you just read it. When it says the beginning of God's creation. That, that could be a problem. You might be saying, how could this be the eternal one having a beginning? Because as you read it, you would imagine that this was saying he was the first one that was born of God's creation. But, but word etymology is kind of important here. To the Greeks, it doesn't mean birth, but it means origin. So with that in mind, let's look at that again. When they say the beginning of God's creation, they're saying that he is the origin of, of God's creation. Now, does Scripture tell us that? Of course it does. The one who said, let there be light, was the one, of course, in Colossians 1, who said that all things were created through him and for him. In Hebrews 1, it says, he is the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. He is, he is the beginning or the originator of God's creation. Now, this is a marvelous picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it speaks to the overarching theme. Why be self-sufficient? Why be self-reliant? Why be independent or autonomous when everything comes from him and he is faithful and true to do everything? He's saying, see me, church. But they had a problem. They couldn't see him because they were blind. Our second point is this, see me because I see you. Notice the beginning of verse 15. I know your works. We'll stop there. I know your works. Now, I find it interesting that, that in every church, he has said, I know your works. It's interesting to see that he pays super interest, uh, super interested in paying attention to what they do. All the seven churches were known by their works. In fact, I think in the YouVersion app, we have this little uh, diagram for you. Ephesus was known for loveless works. Smyrna was known for faithful works. Pergamum was known for false works. Thyatira was known for growing but tolerant work. 
Sardis had incomplete work. Philadelphia had mighty work. And Laodicea had fake work. But before I go on, let me be very, very clear about one thing. I am not saying, and neither is Christ here, that works saves you. I am saying because you are a follower of Christ, you will do for him and show the world your affection towards him and your obedience to him. Let me say that again. I'm not saying that to be a follower of Christ, it's about works. I am saying that what you do for him uh, will show the world your affection for him and your obedience to him. There's a sad movement in evangelical circles today to diminish the working for Christ aspect of our Christian life. I thought back to uh, some moments as a youth pastor. I was sharing with Jeremiah this week in our, our, our time together that uh, as, a t- as a youth pastor, there were work days where some of the older folks just came up to me and said, we're not coming, just make sure there's plenty of youth. We've already done our time. And I thought that was a really sad statement to make. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James isn't saying that we're saved by works again. He's saying, I'm saved, and because of this matchless grace Jesus has towards me, I will be about working for the master. I'm going to bear fruit in keeping with my repentance and salvation. And Jesus is saying in every one of these churches, listen to me. I'm concerned about your work for me. We say here at Harvest, to be a growing disciple, we have three characteristics. I want to just review those again this morning. I'm in favor of being a growing disciple. How about you? All in favor? Great. A growing disciple does three things. Number one, it worships. That's daily devotion time. Time in prayer, weekly study of the word, And in our Sunday service, worshiping and singing to him and listening to him as his word goes forth. Believers want to worship him, but not just there. They want to walk with him. Prayer conversations, building one another up in the faith, being in small group and being held accountable to the one another's helps us walk faithfully with him. But we believe a growing disciple also is one who works for Christ. I mean, there should be no unemployment here at church. Our head ushers, our sound techs, our nursery leaders, our youth and kids leaders shouldn't have to beg for involvement. Sadly, and and hear me now, I I love you. I meant that when I said that. but, But sadly, we love to work for other things. We love to work for the world. And we grumble. We grumble when we have to work for Christ. We would never think of showing up late for a job, but we constantly show up late for worship. The King of Kings wants to meet with us, and we have a laissez-faire attitude about it. Working for Christ should be our greatest joy. It should be our biggest opportunity to share Christ to an unsaved community and to a hurting church. And if we can take one thing away from these seven churches and this mini-series, Here it is. Jesus is evaluating your work. He knows it. He knows what he wants. He knows your heart. And he knows if your work is for him or for the world. How are you using the fruits of your salvation? 
Christ says, see me because I see you. And here, you make me sick. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. I would be, I would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I am prosperous, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I was noticing this morning just the repetitive nature of what Christ was saying, that you are neither cold nor hot. You are neither cold nor hot. You are neither hot nor cold, but you are lukewarm. And you make me sick. Every time I read this passage, I think about, it was uh, 1984, and my uh, soccer coach, Mr. Wilson, asked me to come and help mow some apartments for him. Uh, That was his summer job. And um, as as we were mowing, it was extremely hot. I mean, extremely hot. And uh, one of the ladies noticed that we were we were sweating a good bit and said, can I get you some water? And of course, I was like, yes, please, yes. And, and she was, uh, I guess, a runner type. I don't know. But what she brought me out was warm, salty water. And she said it would be perfect for me. And I took a drink and I about vomited. Uh, it was just not what I needed or wanted. And so I think about that when I say, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here, what is making the master sick? There are at least two things I see here. It would be good for us to evaluate ourselves as we're evaluating um, uh, this text. What does he think of my faith? What does he think of my works? The first problem was this. Their work was disgusting. It was lukewarm. It was going through the motions. There was no love, no heart, no seeking, no glory to God. It was shallow and weak and making him sick. The water reference here, uh, some have thought might have the fact to do with how their water was supplied. Like from Heropolis in the hot springs, they would get hot water. And from Colossae in their cold springs, they would get cold water. But by the time it got to them, it would be lukewarm. But that's just not the case. They had their own water supply. It was a spring five miles outside of the city. So this, this wasn't about where the water came from. This is common... Uh, phrase that goes along with this that that didn't make sense to me either. It was it goes something like this, and maybe maybe you hold to this. I don't know. I want to challenge you this morning on it. it goes like this: You're you're a, a hot if you're a a Christian. You're hot, uh, or you're cold if you're not a Christian, and you're lukewarm if you're carnal and and not sure. But I, I really want us to think about that. And there are a few things that bother me about that statement. God desires that all men should come to salvation. Why would he say he would rather them be cold? The Bible makes no claim for carnal Christianity. If you're backslidden, you should repent and return. If they're not willing, 1 John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. They were goats among sheep. And thirdly, it doesn't fit the context of the passage. This wasn't a, a context about their salvation. It was about their works. Uh, so what does it mean? Well, I, I brought with me uh, a container today, and, and maybe you have something like this. These containers are great because if I warm the inside of this container up and put my coffee in it before the, the day began, my coffee would stay hot for like four hours. 
And early in the morning, it's something that you really want. But if I put ice in it and poured some cool water or maybe some soda pop or, or maybe Kool-Aid, whatever you drink that, that you like cold, uh, it would keep it cold for hours. And there's, a, there's something that really resonates with me. It's this. Hot water is comforting. It's soothing. It's medicinal. I mean, not just coffee or tea, but think of a, a nice hot shower early in a cool morning or a spa or a, a, a hot bath. There's medicinal purposes. It loosens up sore model, uh, muscles and infuses blood into the system. But cold water is good too. Cold water is refreshing and crisp. It's meant to nourish you on a hot day. My first mission trip was to the Ukraine and, and there's a couple things that stood out to me. It was summertime, and um, they had turned the boilers off, so every morning when it was kind of cool in the morning, we would have to wake up, and, and I'm used to taking a shower in the morning, and so I would turn on the shower and then be reminded that because the boiler was off, all I could take was a cold shower, and that was a quick shower, and I kind of left that shower kind of feeling sore. But later on in the day when it got really hot, I was offered a, a Diet Coke, but no ice. Diet Coke warm is horrible. Their works were like a warm cup of water on a hot day or a lukewarm coffee on a cold morning, and all that did was make him want to barf. Christian, we're to be refreshing. He would that we would be refreshing, cold. He would that we would be comforting, hot. But we're neither lukewarm. The second problem that Christ had with this was that their church was about self and self-reliance. Jesus had already told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. And this church mindset was, you, I say, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I need nothing. God is good, church is good, I'm good, life is good, what more do I need? Prophetically, this is the church of our day. Our work is lukewarm. Our reliance is on programs and lights and flashiness. Our church is filled up with people that think they're rich and prosperous and they don't need to repent or read the word or come to the throne of grace and confess their sin. They're without Jesus. And what was Christ's response to their supposed prosperity? I say you are wretched and pitiable. Both these words convey the same picture. They convey the picture of, of someone who is to be pitied. They're miserable. You think you're okay, but you're not. You're sad, actually. You're miserable. You're pitiable. Why? Because you say you're rich, but you're actually poor, blind, and naked. And man, the truth hurts, doesn't it? Remember, he's the amen, and he's the faithful and true witness, and he wouldn't lie about this. The warning was not to be self-sufficient, but to be Christ-dependent. Write that down. Be Christ-dependent. Nate, that sounds pretty serious. Is there a remedy to this? Well, notice verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich 
and white garments so that you may be clothed that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may prove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come in this church's goal this church's solution our solution to our own self-dependency is to do five things we say Five things, here they are. We say we're rich. We say we're clothed well. We say that we're, we're seeing everything good. We say we're all good. And we say, we can hear you. But notice what Christ says. In this text, he says, you may say that, but you're actually poor. You may say that you're clothed well, but you're actually naked. You may see everything, but you're actually blind. You may think you're all good, but you're actually compromised. And you can't hear me, you're deaf. The remedy, therefore, is to buy from me gold and to buy from me clothing and to buy from me eye salve and to be zealous and repent and to listen for the knock and to open the door. The remedy here was to be saved. Yes, it makes it sound like we're supposed to pay for our salvation, but he's telling them to pay for their salvation with what? Let me be clear. The Bible's clear about this. There's no way to pay for your salvation or righteousness cannot be earned. But in Isaiah 55, he says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. How are they to come by and eat? Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Christ is calling for surrender here. Bring what you have. What is it that they have? They have wretchedness. They have pitiableness. They have nakedness, poorness, blindness. And surrender all of that to Christ. Come in your self-reliance and your independence and your sufficiency and set it aside. Notice what he was saying was in contrary to what the city was known for. The city was known for, remember what? Gold, black wool, and medicinal ISAF. Christ says, buy from me better gold. Buy from me pure white garments. Buy from me better eye salve. What's the upside, Nate? Well, for the believer who humbles himself in salvation to the king, the work he does in his name reaps heavenly reward. Gold tested by fire. These folks had no gold because they had no relationship with Jesus, therefore unsaved. For the believer who humbles himself in interdependence on Christ, he clothes them in white robes. See also the church of Sardis. See also Revelation 4, Revelation 5. These folks were not saved because they were naked and, and revealed before the king of kings. And for the believer who humbles himself, his eyes have, have been opened by the Holy Spirit. And these folks were blind. And they were blinded by the God of this world. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul called spiritual blindness a veil and salvation a veil uplifted. And that is uh, what this church was full of, blind, unsafe, naked, spiritually poor people. That is what the text says. And then it goes on to say, those whom I love. But Pastor Nate, you just kind of said that, that this was full of unsaved people, right? And, and, and it's saying that he, he, he loves them and he's going to reprove and discipline them. Is that possible? Well, let me just ask you a question. Do you believe Jesus loves you? Do you believe that he loved you before he saved you? I want you to notice something this that's, that's super important. In keeping with this thought, the word reprove and the word discipline are super important. Reprove means to expose or to convict. Those whom God loves, he exposes, and those whom he loves, he convicts. And he does it through reproof. I stated in a text this week, no one will truly desire salvation unless he first realizes that there is something to be saved from. That is the nature of reproof. Conviction out of love for the unbeliever. Jesus is the light that exposes the darkness, and the Holy Spirit of God is the convicting agent for all change. But not just reproof, notice discipline. The correction and or punishment used by God to convict the unbeliever of their sin and see real life change. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, and the Lord's servant must be able to teach, correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. So with correction and conviction come the question maybe you're facing right now. Maybe you can look at this and say, I'm a pretty self-reliant person. I thought I knew God, but maybe I don't. Uh, what do I do? Well, I want you to notice the only two commands in the text are next. And here it is. In hopes of answering your question, he says to these who are unsaved in this church, be zealous and repent. Zealous means eager, jealous to, or excited for. There was a quickness and a hurriedness to this statement. He said, get on with it and in an exponential fashion. Seek the Lord and then he said, repent. Every church except for two, he has said, repent. Turn from the compromised life and turn to the Savior. Turn from the sin that led you to eternal death and hell apart from the King and turn to Jesus. He loves you enough to reprove you and discipline you and don't be deaf to his knocking. Look at verse 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Now, we've already learned uh, the great uh, truth to this in reference to uh, salvation when Dr. Davis spoke, but I want you to note that this is spoken to a church. 
And if two or three are gathered in, his, in, his, in their midst, he will be there. And he is on the outside church, knocking, not in with them. How many believers are in this church? The church was void of believers just 40 years after Paul planted it. Now he's calling them to hear his words. I noticed in the text he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, his knocking is like his voice calling out, Come to me, come to me, open the door, and there will be reward. Let me ask you this question. Do you hear his voice today? Is he reproving you and convicting you and drawing you into this great relationship? For all of eternity, open the door. Swing it wide open. Well, how do, how do I do that? Well, the scripture says to humble yourself. And so maybe even right now you would do that. And humbling yourself, you just kind of close your eyes and then bow your head. That's, that's an act of humility. And maybe, maybe right now in this moment, as you're listening, you would do that. And you would come to him. And you would open the door and you would tell him that you're a sinner. And he, you need his healing. And you would open the door and you would tell him that you were blind. And that you were poor. And that you are in need of being clothed by him. And would you pray to him right now? Do you believe that he could do that? Tell him you do. Start today in a relationship with him that will bring you joy no matter what the world tells you or does to you. Again, be Christ dependent. Our last point is this, the reward. In every church, there is a reward for the faithful. But I want to come back to the end of verse 20, because I didn't really talk about that because I want to talk about it in the reward section. He says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So the beginning of the verse 20 said this. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Two things here. First reward, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Write this down next to that verse. Eternal fellowship. Eternal fellowship. It's an intimate and personal thing that he's saying there. For the people of this culture, this was, a, this was an extremely personal thing. Sharing a meal meant sharing communion and fellowship and more. But, but it was the last thing that happened in the day. There was supper and then there was the end of the day. And this is a beautiful reward. Our reward will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb for us as bride. But for some, it's a warning. There's mealtime church, and then there's the end. Don't hesitate 
or he'll begin the meal without you and you'll be too late. And that meal starts in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. Seek the reward, hear the knocking, open the door and let him come in and have this intimate personal relationship time with him day in and day out until he comes to take us home. He says, in my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. So the first reward is this, eternal fellowship. The second reward is rest. Write that next to verse 21. Rest, finally home. My son recently traveled back from uh, Colorado. Um, in fact, last Sunday he got home about the same time I got home from church. He had driven all night. He said hi. He gave me a hug. And he went to bed. He was finally home. It was a long, arduous journey. And he slept for hours. I look at this verse and it says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me. I want you to think about that. It doesn't say, listen, I will grant him a towel for service. It doesn't say, I will grant him a, sho a shovel for work, nor a wheelbarrow for more back-breaking labor. Only offered is a seat. And we'll be granted to sit with him. Think about that statement there. Sit with him on his throne. Notice the verse. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. The king of kings throne. Really? Because I've also conquered and I have sat down on my father's throne. Wow. 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 It's quite a reward. Think of it. Rest. Eternal fellowship. The danger of self-dependence and interdependent or independence and self-sufficiency is that there is no need for a savior. The joy of Christ's dependency is we find that Christ is enough. Let me say that again. The joy of Christ's dependency is that we find that Christ is enough. Church, let these seven churches be an x-ray to your faith, to your heart, to your soul. As we stay home, read them again. See who Christ is. Become Christ-dependent. And ask yourself, is Christ my all in all? Is he my joy? Is he my devotion? Is it true that there is nothing in this world that will ever satisfy in comparison to him? The danger of self-dependence is the church of Laodicea who thought they were okay. But in reality, they were not. Be Christ-dependent, church. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this journey that we have taken through the ages and looking at your churches and how you have ministered to each one of them and how you have evaluated them and how you have said, I know your works. I know you faithful church. I see you weak church. I see you false church. Father, help us to be a church of Philadelphia. Open a door for us for ministry. Help us to be dependent on you. Help us not to forget our first love, but help us to be Christ-dependent and not self-dependent and self-sufficient. Thank you for this time where we can learn the importance of being apart so that when we are together, it is so sweet. And thank you for our fellowship through uh, the internet. And thank you for even being sovereign in that. And we thank you for your word, how it teaches us and keeps us in control. Father, today, build us up as a church, as a body, as we anticipate being together again. Uh, Keep us, Father, if it's your will, from being sick and give us the rest we have until we're finally home to do the work of the ministry that lies ahead. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are loved. See you next week. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.